Please turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're still in the introductory part of this epistle, and we're still in the introduction to our sermon series in 1 Peter. We've considered the author, the Apostle Peter. The last time we looked at the recipients of the letter, and we saw that this letter was written to those resident aliens who were the elect of God. And we made the case that this letter is written to those and, and all of those who live as exiles, those who are in Christ who live as exiles, and we can all have benefit and find great value here. This is not only a letter for Christians who were born in the physical lineage of Abraham, but this letter is also for those who are in the faith lineage of Abraham. This letter is for us as we are spiritual Israel. Today we pick up on the designator that we saw last time as God's elect. Peter addresses us as God's elect and we see a few details of this electing of God. And we'll see the salvation which we have from God is not the work of a single person of the Godhead. Rather, we have a Trinitarian salvation that comes from a triune God, the triune God of Scripture. So once again, we will read the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. And as we read, you can keep in mind, verse 2 will be our focal text for today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's bow our heads and ask God's blessing on our time together. God of heaven, whom we worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, one God undivided in essence, yet distinct in persons, we ask today that you help us as we come to your word, as we come to a foundational and fundamental text for our understanding of the great salvation that we have by your grace. 
Teach us today by your word and your spirit. Teach us with corrective discipline, tearing down false ideas and untruth which we may harbor. Teach us by formative discipline, building up proper truth and orthodox belief in us. Help us, help us today to hear the voice of Christ our Savior in the preaching of the Word of God. Knowing that the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God to us. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. At the outset this morning, I would like to take just a moment to speak about the theme of the book of 1 Peter. I mentioned before, I think, in the first message in this book, that Peter covers a great deal of ground, a great deal of territory in this short epistle. So let me pause here. I'm already pausing in my notes, but let me pause again and say, this is a short epistle. And uh, it is of great benefit when we read the scripture, amen, but it is also a great benefit when we read a passage or a place in its entirety. So let me encourage you, it won't take you 20 minutes to sit down and read 1 Peter from beginning to end and get the sense of the whole letter. And then you will see he covers a lot of ground, but it's short. He covers suffering, marriage, governmental authority, good works and holiness, love for one another, service, leadership. Some have, in speaking of the theme of 1 Peter, some have declared, well, the major theme, or at least one of the major themes is suffering. But I really think that misses the point. Suffering is a theme and you see suffering and, and difficulties and hardship throughout this. Suffering is a fact of life and it is a fact of Christian life. But I think that really misses the point when we say it's the main theme or the major theme of this book. I, I pointed out also in the first message that Peter opens the book and then closes the book with grace. Speaking of grace. So you may say, well, grace must be the major theme or at least one of the major themes of the book. And if you said that, I, I, I wouldn't say you're wrong. I'm not going to argue with you. But we see grace. And, and look, you see it in the second verse here. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So we see grace at the outset. But we need to recognize that Peter does not speak of grace without speaking of the giver of grace. He, do, he doesn't talk about the elect without speaking of the great elector. He doesn't speak about suffering without talking about the one who has his hand on the thermostat, as it were. Peter doesn't Concentrate on the gift and neglect the gift giver. The great God of heaven is clearly the emphasis of this letter. And, and I know that can be said about any other book of the Bible, but 
Let us be reminded that God is the source of all blessing, of all hope, of all grace, of everything good spoken of in this letter. God is the source. How entitled and ungrateful would it be this morning for me to tell you about this wonderful gift that I received and how great the gift is. It's such a wonderful, marvelous gift and neglect to tell you that the gift was given to me by my father. What well, wouldn't it be entitled and ungrateful for us to speak of the grace of God without saying these graces are the gift that we receive from our Father, from our Heavenly Father. Amen. So God is clearly the central focus, the central theme of 1 Peter and, and of the rest of the Bible. And while we may think of the vastness of God's grace, we may think of common graces and special graces. Peter, in the beginning here, calls our attention to particular grace gifts. And he causes us to tune our hearts and minds into this frequency. He did this by first addressing the readers as the elect. To be chosen by God out of his mere good pleasure is a gracious act of God toward us as helpless, hopeless sinners. And now we, because of his graciousness, because of his grace lavished upon us, we have hope in Jesus Christ because of his electing grace. But after Peter addresses us as the elect, we have here to consider this morning three phrases to further our thinking about these grace gifts of God and what it is to be God's elect. He says to those who are chosen, to the elect, to those who are elect. And then we have three prepositional phrases here. We are elect according to. You'll see it in your Bible. We are elect by and we are elect to. And these three prepositional phrases will open up for us this electing, this saving work of God. So as we begin in the first place, I'd like to note the Trinitarian nature of our election and our salvation. This is seen in these three phrases and in the modifiers that come in them. First in verse two, look, we see of God, the father. And then we see of the spirit. And then you see Jesus Christ. So you see that we have the Trinity delineated for us right here of God, the father of the spirit of Jesus Christ. This is our triune God laid out for us in this verse. So let's take a minute to talk about God as Trinity and how we can speak of him properly. And I'd like to take a moment to talk about God under the headings of inseparable operations and then appropriations. Now I 
don't have a preference if you walk out of here and can't remember inseparable operations and appropriations. If you can't remember those terms, that's okay. But first of all, I think most of us already have a sense of what, what it means, and that's the important thing for us to walk out of here, that we walk out of here with the understanding of what this means when we speak of inseparable operations and appropriations. First, inseparable operations as defined by one theologian is this. Inseparable operations means that all of God's works with respect to creation are common to all three persons of the Trinity. All of God's works with relation to uh, creation are common to all three persons of the Trinity. When God acts toward his creatures, his acts are undivided. There is one power, one glory, one wisdom. And what we mean by this is we do not serve three gods. There are not three who are working together. There is no cooperation with God. Cooperation is working together. Two or three or more working together. There is no cooperation with God. He has inseparable operations. He is one God and he acts as one. As scripture declares it, God is one. The Father does not work independently nor separately from the Son or the Spirit. Likewise, the Son does not work independently. The Spirit does not work independently or in an individual way. So in our conversation, in our thinking and in our words, we must speak in a way that speaks of God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Here's what I'm saying. We must never divide God. By the way that we talk, and that's the wrong way to say it. I tried to say something that wasn't in my notes. We cannot divide God, but we must never speak and in our minds divide God. Does that make sense? In our minds, we should always keep this in mind that we cannot divide God in the way that we speak about Him. An act of the Father is equally an act of the Son and the Spirit. God acts with inseparable operations. Yeah, it just occurs to me that when we begin to speak about Jesus in His incarnation, that Jesus hungered, this complicates the matter even more. Now you're wondering, why don't you bring it up? It, it complicates the matter. But God is undivided. And we speak of God and we, we don't mix uh, or, 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 or try to divide God. Secondly, appropriations. So there's inseparable operations. God acts uh, as one. But then there are appropriations. When we consider appropriations, even as the works of God are undivided or inseparable, there are often works associated with or referred to as being of one certain person of the Trinity. Certain things are attributed to a single person of the Godhead. Even the language of Scripture 
speaks about the acts of the Father and the acts of the Son and the acts of the Spirit. And even though God's acts are undivided, it appropriates them in that way. And we see that in this verse before us today. God is one God. There's not three in this verse cooperating, but we have before us the appropriations of God the Father and the Spirit and the Son. So we see that in our verse. So in our minds, we don't split the Trinity. We have here before us one God, one salvation, one saving grace, but we see the Trinitarian nature of election and salvation laid out for us in this verse. I feel like I've muddied the waters in this, but I hope that maybe it got through. If you need more help, then ask Pastor Brent, he'll clear it up for you. <laughs> Inseparable operations and appropriations of God. He is one God, but we see the appropriations here, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So now let's consider these three phrases that, that do appropriate these works. The first phrase, and this is the one that we will spend the most time on this morning. The first phrase, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now let me say, while, we're, while we've just talked about inseparable operations... Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father is not to lead us to believe that the Son and Spirit had nothing to do with this. But it is appropriated to the Father here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is where a great deal of error can come in. People see a word in the Bible and they think, well, that word, I know that word. So it must be used in scripture the same way that we use the word today. And sometimes that's not the case. Even though we're reading English Bibles, sometimes it's not the case. Let me give you an example. It'll take just a minute, but I think it'll be helpful for us. The example is the word hope. H-O-P-E, hope. Now we know the word hope. Hope is a a feeling or a desire for something to happen. A feeling or a desire for a certain thing to happen. I hope it rains tomorrow. I, I hope there's no traffic on my way home. And I hope Publishers Clearinghouse is there when I get there. That's, I hope those. I hope that. But it's a hope. It's a desire for something to happen. But as we use the word hope in our day, often hope is baseless. Does anybody truly believe that I have a basis for hoping that Publishers Clearinghouse is at my, at my place? They, often when we talk about hope, it's baseless. It's a wish. It's fantasy. But the Bible uses the word differently. And if we don't recognize the different use of the word, then we may be confused, even wrong, on some important Doctrinal things. Here just here's an example. We're using the word hope. Psalm 119 says, I have put my hope in your word. Psalm 31 speaks of those who put their hope in the Lord. And Hebrews 10 says that we should hold tightly to the hope that we possess. 
So if we say, well, yeah, I know what that word means. It is a fantastical desire. Then all of a sudden we, we have a baseless fairy tale wish in the word of God. We have an ungrounded desire that the Lord can help us. And we profess a faith that is nothing more than a fancy or a yearning of our heart. If we take our meaning into the word hope, into scripture, then we wind up gutting the faith. But we know that hope in the Bible does not mean this. Hope in scripture is a rock solid assurance. Not a fanciful wish, a rock solid assurance. So now we see those verses and we say, we stand on the word. Our hope is in the word. We stand on the word as our hope, our foundation, our rock solid assurance. We have a Gibraltar like confidence in the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord. And our faith, the faith that we profess, we are professing assurance we are professing something that is solid so hope is one of those words we have to understand the biblical use of it when we come to scripture and so it is in our text with the word foreknowledge foreknowledge when we look at that word we say well I know what that means foreknowledge means you know the future you have a cognitive awareness. You have cognitive facts beforehand. That's what that word means. And, and if we come to the scripture with that understanding and that idea of the word foreknowledge, then we will have a wrong idea and develop wrong doctrine about the foreknowledge of God. We would develop the idea that God looked through time to find out some decision or some action that would take place. He knew the future. And we forget when we do that, that God created time. Looking through time to find out something, God created time and thus God created everything in time. And God exists outside of time and sees time beginning to end as a whole. So those who would come to the word of God and come with a wrong understanding of foreknowledge would miss the fact that that's not how the Bible uses that word. And the foreknowledge of God is spoken of not in terms of his knowing Actions or decisions, but it is spoken of that God knows people. Romans 8 says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he justified, he sanctified, etc. Those whom he foreknew. It doesn't say, Those whom he foreknew a decision, or those whom he foreknew an action, those whom he foreknew some piece of data about it's not that he knew information it's that he knew them or he knew us those whom he foreknew it speaks of knowing people but we see the foreknowledge of God in scripture and we need to understand that how the Bible is using this term 
To do this, we must consider the term foreknowledge. We need to also consider the word knowledge and its use in scripture and, and all the forms of the word to know new past tense. So we need to consider these words as we study. And I would encourage you to do a word study if you need to, to see it. We're going to do a shortened version, an abbreviated version of a word study here today. If you're taking notes, I'll try to give you opportunity to write down these scripture references. I'm not going to give you opportunity to turn there because of time. Uh, and if you need to know these afterwards, I'll be glad to share. Jeremiah 1.5. God speaking here to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is clearly speaking, not of the fact that God knew about Jeremiah, but that God knew Jeremiah. He, he had a special covenant relationship with him. He was marked out. He marked out Jeremiah before Jeremiah was formed. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. This is a little bit longer one, but you'll see the use of the word at the very end. The Exodus. During those days, many of the kings of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help to the Lord. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Does this merely mean that God became aware of the plight of the nation of Israel? He saw and then he knew. No, he already knew. So what does this mean? God knew. God knew indicates that God had a special covenant love for Israel. And he would then act on that special covenant love and free them from the bondage of Egypt. God knew is more than awareness. It's love. I don't have it in our text, but, but 1 Corinthians speaks of the one who loves God, the same, that person, the one who loves God, the same is known of him. The one who loves God, wouldn't you expect to hear, the one who loves God, the same is loved of God. Well, that's what the verse says, but it uses the word known. The one who loves God, the same is known of him. The Lord knows and this knowing of God and foreknowing of God is his love and his forelove. Before we look at the next verse, let me ask some questions just to get our minds set. Is God aware of the way of some people or all people? Somebody tell me. All. All people. God is aware of the way of all people. So if we use the word as we use it today, God knows the way of all people. God knows the way of righteous people and God knows the way of unrighteous people. So Psalm 1-6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but contrast, the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
Now, wait a minute. I thought God knew the way of all people. But this no means something else. Do you see it? God's knowing the way of the righteous means that he loves them. He protects them. He keeps them. And the ungodly have no such love, no such protection, no such promise. God only knows when we use the word in the biblical sense, God only knows the way of the righteous. Now, he's aware of the way of all people, but he only knows the way of the righteous. Amos, Amos 3, 2. You only, speaking to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. I want to say it again. You only have I known of all the families. Was God unaware? There were other families on the earth and God didn't know. Is that what this is saying? No. God, God, God was not ignorant of the fact that there were other families. This is speaking. You only have I known. You only have I loved. You only do I have a covenant relationship with. You only have I set my grace upon. Of all the families of the earth. The Bible uses the word in a different way. First Timothy, these last two. These last two are jarring for us. First Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. It just doesn't mean that God is aware of who's a Christian and who's not. The Lord knows those who are His. If you are His, there is a special covenant relationship. A special covenant love. There's something there that is more. Think, think of the other example that we can use from the Old Testament. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived a son. Now, anybody that's over 10 years old will already know that something more than just Adam being aware that he had a wife had to take place there. Adam knew his wife. What does that speak of? A special covenant love relationship. And she can see that's all. That's how the word is used. The Lord knows those who are his. In the sense that he loves them with a covenant love. He sets his grace, his favor on them. He knows them in a unique way. Now let's look at the opposite. Matthew 7, 23. Jesus says, I will declare to them, depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I never knew you. Jesus is not saying, I didn't know you were around. I don't know about you. I never knew you. This is the heavy load of sin that is to be borne by those who will never be the recipients of the special covenant love of God. He never knew them. Now I know we went through that quickly and that's a lot of information, but I hope the point is made here. When we come to texts like that are before us today, we are elect according to the foreknowledge, the foreknowing of God the Father. We have to bring a biblical understanding to this. This is not about him electing because of some insider information that he had. 
This is about his foreknowledge, his forelove, his loving us before we were ever even formed. His special covenant grace toward us. And that foreknowledge, that forelove motivated God to elect us, to choose us. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is appropriated, as I said, to God the Father, but don't think that it was without the Son and the Spirit. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are elect by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Elect by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here, sanctifying work. When we think of sanctifying work, we think of that ongoing work of God, the, the ongoing work that God is doing in every Christian in, in life on earth. But that is not what this sanctifying work is speaking of. This speaks of the setting apart, of calling us out of sin, of sanctifying us, of consecrating, marking us out for salvation. According or by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Now, yes, we are sanctified by the Spirit in a broader sense and we obey Christ in a broader sense. But here, this sanctifying work to set us apart for the obedience and that specific particular obedience is the obedience of repentance and faith. Now, we just talked about this Wednesday, if you'll remember, about the obedience, the, the, the obedience that is obedient repentance. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That could go under the heading redemption plan. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Christ could go under the heading Redemption applied to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. It occurs to me that when we talk about being sprinkled with his blood, some people would have a reaction like, ooh, gross. I hope that you don't. I hope that you, you understand this is precious. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. This statement calls us back to, in our minds to the Old Testament. Where sprinkling of the blood was a picture of great significance. And we don't have time today to go into all the detail of the sprinkling of blood. But in Exodus, Moses sprinkled the blood of a bull. He took the blood and he sprinkled half of it on the altar. Half of it was sprinkled on the altar and the other half was sprinkled on the people. And this sprinkling of the blood on the people represented the sealing of a covenant, the sealing of the promise of God to them. Now that's important. You want to be sealed in this covenant, you've got to be sprinkled with blood. Those people were sprinkled with blood. And believers, we're, we're no longer under the old covenant. We no longer sacrifice 
animals. We no longer deal with the blood of bulls and goats. Our sacrifice is so much greater. Our sacrifice is so much more. The Lamb of God. And now we are, according to this text, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. This represents the fact that we are sealed in the new covenant by His blood. The election of God is according to the foreknowledge his predetermined love, foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled by his blood, to be sealed in this covenant by his blood. Praise be to our great triune God for the mercy and grace that he has shown us by making us members of the covenant of grace. This is cause, Christians, for us to rejoice. This is cause for us to worship. But some may be thinking, what, what do we do with this doctrine? If God elects, if God chooses, and I don't if, if I choose, I know what I choose. By the way, the problem is, if I choose today one thing, tomorrow I might choose another thing. If it's my choice, if it's my election, if it's my, if it's my thing, then it, that salvation is only as good as my choosing. And that's not trustworthy. But if it's God's choice, our Lord changes not. But if it's His choice, what are we to do with that? And sometimes we wonder things like, like we wonder as, as lost people, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm chosen? How do I know? Well, here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the electing work, the choosing work is God's work. That's what he does. That's not what I do. That's not what pastors do. Preachers don't do the electing work. He doesn't even tell us who the elect are. He doesn't tell us which ones are elect and which ones are not elect. That's God's work. So we preach the gospel to everybody and we let God sort out the elect. We let him do that. And if you're thinking, how do I know if I'm elect? Let me say this. The Bible doesn't put that responsibility on you either. Now, this is an important doctrine for those who are saved that it might bring us to worship, that it might bring us to gratitude, that it might bring us to praise. It's an important doctrine that it might humble us, that it wasn't us, but it's all of God. But the Bible doesn't put it on you as a lost person to, to see, am I elect or am I not? God is now commanding all people everywhere 
to repent of their sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you have to worry with? Am I elect? No, don't worry with that. Your worry is this. Have you repented of your sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? That is your task. That is the only, that is, that is the job. We started with this this morning and it seems to me a wonderful thing to add here. What are we to do if you're lost without Jesus Christ? What are you to do then? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. That's repentance. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him come to the Lord. And he, the Lord, will have compassion on him. What are you to do? Run to Jesus. Repenting of your sin, believing in Jesus for salvation, that is, the, that is the command. That is the command of Scripture. That is the command of this preacher. That is what you are to do. How many of us, I, I, how many of us understood election when we were saved? I'm going to say so very few. Maybe none of us here understood election when we were saved. We just came to Christ. Later you learn what a wonderful gift it is. What a wonderful grace blessing it is. Later you learn about that. Don't worry about that stuff. You worry about how I repented of my sin and believed in Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And if you will seek the Lord, if you will call upon him, you will find that he has compassion. You will find that all who call on the name of the Lord. I know that verse in King James. It's a. Uh, somebody help me. All who call on the name of the Lord might be saved. That's not what it says. All who call on the name of the Lord could be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lost person. Run to Jesus by faith. Repenting of your sin. Christians. We are left with nothing to do. What are we going to do to earn salvation? What are we going to do to keep salvation? We do the same thing to keep salvation that we did to get it. And that's nothing. What do we do? We continually, over and over again, every day, multiple times a day, sometimes moment by moment, we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. It is by grace that we are saved. It is the gift of God. It is not of my works. It is of the works of Jesus Christ. It is what he did in his life and in his death. Proven to be accepted by God by his resurrection. And we preach that to ourselves over and over again. Lest we start to think that we have something in it. What a precious thing to say. 
that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Christ Jesus and to be sprinkled with his blood. I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply these things to our hearts by your spirit. We pray for the salvation of sinners. And we pray that you would, for your people, grow us up. Help us to be worshipers, those who bring praise to you, those who obey you out of hearts of gratitude. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.